be seated. We're going to enter into our Bible lesson here. We're going to be starting with something a little unique, perhaps. And uh, let me make sure that my picture came up behind me here. There it is. Now, I have a question that hopefully will uh, get our attention. Can anybody see? Now, let me say before I ask you this question. When, when I was growing up, I was, uh, uh, I enjoyed the, the little action figures, the little army men that you'd get at the dollar store. They were green. Remember those? They were all green, the whole thing, and they were plastic, and you could set them up all over. And I would hide them. I would set them up, and I would hide them. And uh, my poor mom, she would step on them and about break her foot because I'd hide them all over the house. And, uh, and it made me think of this uh, because in this picture, there is a sniper in the picture. And I'm wondering if anybody can see the sniper in this picture. I'll give you a couple seconds here. I could not see it. I tried. I tried my very best. This is a real picture of a real sniper. And uh, I can see it now. It's, the interesting thing about this is I couldn't spot it without help the first time. But after someone showed it to me, I was able to pick it out every single time. And that's the thing. Many times when, when something is exposed to you, you recognize it easily the second time. Isn't that right? And, and so did anybody see it? Has anybody seen it? A couple of you? A few of you haven't seen it? All right, I'm going to show it to you. It's right there. You can just barely see the barrel of the gun coming out of the, the brush there and the camouflage. Was anybody wrong? Did you think you saw it? A couple of you were wrong. <laughs> so that's why, that's why it's important. That's why it's important to stay vigilant. Everyone said vigilant. The Bible says to be, to be watchful and to be sober and to be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is like a roaming lion uh, seeking whom he may devour. And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to be looking at, at some of the ways, five ways specifically, that the enemy attacks the church. And the enemy does attack the church. Uh, I know he attacks individuals, he attacks people, but he attacks the church specifically because he knows that the church is powerful. He knows that the church, if it's left unchecked, the church can literally turn the world upside down. And, and so he spends a lot of his resources you know, the devil does not have unlimited resources. Did you know that? I want to remind somebody of this. The devil is not God. He is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at the same time. He is not omnipotent. He does not have all power. Only God. Look at your neighbor and say, only God. Only God is omnipotent. Only God has all power. Only God is omnipresent everywhere at the same time. The devil does not possess those capabilities or those attributes. 
And so he is limited. Now, I'm not undermining the fact that he is a, a powerful foe. He's stronger than you are, but he's not stronger than the God that you serve. And that's what you need to remember. You need to have the humility to understand that you cannot overcome the devil on your own. But you also need to have the faith to believe that the God that you serve has all authority. He has dominion. He has power over your adversary, the devil. And so you can walk in that confidence, not in the confidence of your greatness or your strength or your ability, but you walk in the confidence that God is a great God. You walk in the confidence that God is a powerful God. And so, as we saw from that picture, it, it is a wise thing. It's a wise thing to be watchful because often when we recognize the way that an enemy is positioning himself to attack us, only then can you go on the offensive or the defensive in the appropriate way. See, if you were to look at that picture and, and you weren't, and you weren't able to see where the sniper was in the picture, you could be, uh, just to use a, uh, a physical metaphor here, you could, be, you could be shooting in all kinds of directions, and yet you would not be doing any good if you couldn't see the enemy, if you couldn't see where the enemy was positioned, if you couldn't see where the attack was coming from, you could not... Do what you needed to do to prepare yourself. And so that's what we're doing tonight is we're going to prepare ourselves uh, for some of the ways that the enemy attacks us. Five ways. And we're going to move quickly. Don't worry. Number one, and we're looking at the enemy's top five tactics. Number one, he prevents humility. Someone said humility. He prevents humility by promoting self-sufficiency. self Sufficiency. You see, the opposite of pride is humility. And, of course, we know that the Bible warns us against the, the dangers of pride. In fact, uh, pride is, is uh, I think, in the top five, maybe top ten most dangerous things that the Bible warns us against. Uh, in one place, the, the Bible says... That pride is, is attached to the spirit of witchcraft. And, and of course, we know that it was pride that caused Lucifer to fall and ultimately become, uh, go from being an angel of light to an angel of darkness and becoming Satan. And so pride is a dangerous, it's a pervasive, uh, it is a destructive force that grips the hearts of men and women if they're not careful. But we know this as church people. As church people, we've heard enough messages about the spirit of pride. And, and we know that pride's a bad thing. I could ask you to raise your hand. Everyone in this room knows that pride is a bad thing. But, but what often happens is we, we develop a form. We don't call it pride. We might call it self-sufficiency we might call it, well, somebody's got to, you know, I've got to get this done and I've got to be this. And we don't call it pride. We call it self-sufficiency. But really, it's a form of pride. And if you're not careful, it's a seed that will grow in your life. You know, we're living in a world 
that we just redefine things. Have you ever noticed that? If, you know, we know that pride's wrong, so instead of calling it pride, we call it self-sufficiency. Uh, we, we know that all kinds of things are wrong, and so we're just, we just change definitions. Isn't that how our culture is doing things now? We just rearrange words. It's really the same thing, but we just slap a different label on it. And we need to be very careful as the church. Pride will destroy a church. Pride will destroy me. Pride will destroy you. You must guard yourself against the enemy's onslaught of pride that he wants to bring into your life. And I want to show you how to fight back. Let's look at Philippians 2 and 3. This is how you fight back against pride. It says this, let nothing, everyone said nothing, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. So what I would do is whenever you're about to do something, check your spirit. Check your spirit and say, am I doing this to cause strife? Am I doing this to bring uh, glory or out of vanity because of myself? You know, I've seen people who worship, you know, they would they would worship, but they were doing it to draw attention to themselves. Even worship, if you're not careful, can be done out of a spirit of pride. When we worship, we worship with a spirit of humility. When we give, we don't do it out of pride or vainglory. We do it out of out of the generosity of our heart because we love the Lord. And so when we give, even our giving, if we're not careful, can be done out of vainglory. That's why Jesus even spoke of prayer and fasting. He said, don't, when you're fasting, don't go out in front of everybody and, and talk about how you've been fasting all week long. Do that privately because it's between you and God. You're not doing it so someone will pat you on the back and say, oh, Brother Ryan, you're so spiritual. You've been fasting all week long. No. We don't do it for those reasons because we're avoiding pride. But he says this, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better. Everyone said better than themselves. And so the way that we combat the spirit of pride is to constantly check our spirit to make sure that we're not doing it out of strife, that we're not doing it for glory or vanity. But And that also, at the same time, we would esteem others better than ourselves. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? It's a lot easier to esteem your brother or your sister above yourself. But that's exactly what God tells us to do, is to esteem our brother more highly than ourselves. To esteem our sister more highly than ourselves. And when you do that, when you truly do that, it is impossible to have a spirit of pride. I've preached about this and taught about this before. I'm going to repeat it here. Humility is a choice. Humility is a choice. Humility is not something that most of us are born with. Some of us are, but many people are not born with humility. We're all born uh, with, with, if we're not careful, a desire for self-promotion. The world is in a lot of trouble because people are promoting themselves. And so humility is something 
in the spirit realm that you have to say, I choose to be humble today. I choose to put on the garment of humility. And so that is exactly how we fight and combat against the spirit of pride. All right, number two. Number two. The enemy prevents unity. Everyone said unity. The enemy prevents unity by creating division. I think that if I were to say the single most common tactic that we're going to talk about tonight is this one. There is probably no more common way that the enemy attacks the church than by trying to create division every possible way that he can. He would love for you to have uh, anger towards your brother and your sister. He would love for you uh, to get a little sideways at the ministry. He would love for something. He'd love for you to be upset because, uh, and, and the smaller the issue is, the better. If he can get you angry because somebody uh, uh, gave you a high five instead of shaking your hand, then he would love to do that. The smaller the issue, the better it is for him. Because Isn't it funny how the smallest things can start the biggest fire sometimes? It, the smallest things can, can, can explode into a raging inferno if you allow yourself to, to uh, foster a spirit of disunity. And we know that when the church is unified, there is almost nothing the church is not capable of doing. Even the devil knows the power of unity. When they were building the Tower of Babel, they were building it up towards heaven. And God looked down and he said, listen, uh, there's nothing they can't do out of the wickedness of their imagination because they're unified. Even when evil unites, it becomes unstoppable. But oh, my friend, when the church of the living God unites, I want to tell you, there is nothing that the church of God cannot do when they are unified in righteousness, when they are unified in holiness, when they are unified in prayer, when they're unified in their praise. It's powerful. It's powerful. And the devil knows that. He knows that unity produces revival. Yes, it does. Unity always produces revival. The devil hates unity. He hates it because he knows what it will do. And so he'll come, come at it every way he can. He'll, he'll create lies. He'll create deception. He'll cause you to believe things about your brother that aren't true. He'll cause you to suspect things about your sister that aren't true. Why? Because he wants to create division in the body of Christ. If he can separate the hand from the body, he knows that he's handicapped the church. If he can dislocate a shoulder, he knows that he's handicapped the church. If he can dislocate the legs, he knows that he can stop the outreach. And so he'll do whatever. I wish Apostolic Tabernacle on a sleepy Wednesday night in the middle of a hot summer would clap your hands to the Lord and say, I'm going to resist division. I am going to fight for unity. I'm going to make a choice that I am going to be a peacekeeper. I am going to speak peace. That's a decision that you can make. But you know, a lot of people don't make that decision. A lot of people make a decision that I, 
I am going to foster and harbor a spirit, sometimes just a spirit of being easily offended. You know, sometimes being easily offended is just code for not being at peace with all men. Easily offended is a very dangerous way to live your life because you will constantly be going in and out of unity, in and out of unity, in and out of unity, and you're crippling the power that God wants to allow to be unleashed in your life. And so let me tell you how to fight back, Ephesians 4 and 2, with all lowliness and meekness, everyone said meekness, with long-suffering or suffering long. Sometimes just flipping that word around helps you understand what it means a little bit. Sometimes you have to suffer long with people. If you love people, you'll be willing to suffer long with them. Forbearing or preferring one another in love. There's the same concept we just talked about about in Philippians. But here's what I want us to notice in verse 3. Everyone said endeavoring. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Look at your neighbor and say, make an effort. Make an effort. That's how you combat the spirit of division. You know what? It doesn't happen by accident. It doesn't, and let me say this, it doesn't happen easily either. It's not easy to do it. If you think it's going to be easy, you're wrong. It's a choice, and you have to endeavor. You have to work at it. You have to strive for it. You have to say, I, I am going to keep the unity of the spirit. I am going to walk in the bond of peace. And when you do that, I want you to know you're going to shake hell up. Hell is going to be stirred up when you make up your mind. I, I'm not going to get upset over every little thing. I, I, I'm not going to gossip about every little thing. I'm not going to pass every little tidbit of information along like it's gospel truth. No, no, no. Because I am going to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. Someone said, praise the Lord, glory to God. It's a choice. And it's work, and it's something that we should strive for. All right, number three. Number three of the enemy's top five ta tactics. He prevents joy by causing discouragement. He prevents joy by causing discouragement. Anybody ever been discouraged before? I've been discouraged. Discouragement is, is common. And discouragement is the enemy of joy. I wouldn't say that it's the opposite of joy, but it will steal your joy quickly. Discouragement will sap you of your joy quickly. And that's important because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so if the enemy can rob you of your joy, one discouragement at a time, then eventually he can render you powerless. If he can take away your joy long enough, if he can completely sap you of your joy long enough, eventually you'll wake up like Samson and you'll shake yourself expecting to feel the strength of the Lord coursing through your body, 
and there will be nothing left because he robbed you of your joy. One discouragement at a time. But let me tell you, I'm glad that, that God has given us weapons. Aren't you glad God's given us weapons? God didn't leave us powerless. God didn't leave us defenseless in this battle. And we are in a battle. But God didn't leave us by ourselves. Here, here's how we fight back. Psalm 34 and 17. The righteous cry. That's how you fight back right there. Now that's twofold. Number one, you better make sure you're righteous. Let me say that again. You better make sure that you're righteous. Because if you're unrighteous, you're going to have a problem. But when the righteous cry, the Lord heareth and delivereth them out of all. Someone said all. He delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh. He's near to them that are of a broken heart. That sounds like discouragement to me, doesn't it? And saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Listen to me. I'm preaching to somebody for just a minute here. You've been going through some times of discouragement. You've been walking through some times of affliction. And you feel like you're a lesser Christian because you've been fighting discouragement. You are not a lesser Christian because you have been fighting discouragement. I don't care what the people on K-Love sound like. That's not real life. Sometimes you're going to be discouraged. And listen to me. When you get discouraged, cry out to Jesus. Jesus and he will not leave you alone he will not leave you or forsake you he will be there he will uplift you he will hold you up in the palm of his mighty right hand and many are the afflictions of the righteous but the Lord oh I love this but the Lord delivereth them hallelujah out of most of them no, no. All of them. If you believe that, lift up your hands and thank the Lord for it right now. Lord, we thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our deliverer, God. Thank you for hearing us when we cry. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I sometimes have, uh, nobody here in, in the church, I've, we have a wonderful church, sweet people. And uh, I, I don't know that anyone's ever said an unkind thing to me, but sometimes when I preach in this vein, because these go out to the podcast, we have about, what we're hovering at about 35,000 to 40,000 that listen to our podcast on a monthly basis. And sometimes when I preach like this, and I, I do sometimes preach about how good people fight discouragement. And inevitably, when I do that, I'll get an email from somebody who rebukes me for that. You know, don't tell people, you know, tell, tell them to tell them when they, you know, when they're not feeling good that that they need to take take mind over matter. I don't believe in mind over matter. That's humanism. I don't believe that you can overcome with the strength of your inner man. You overcome by the power of God. I'm not leaning to my own. The Bible says, lean not to thine own understanding. I, 
There's a lot of things, by the way, that I don't understand. Is that okay? Can I just say that? There's a lot of things that when I get to heaven, I'm gonna, when I get done feasting and praise God, I'm excited about that. And that's going to be at least a three-year event for me. And, uh, you know, time's going to stand still. When, we, when I get done with my three-year feast, and I'm going to spend about 20 years dancing around the throne, it'll seem like 10 minutes. And then I'm going to spend another couple years with the choir and uh, trying out for a solo. And, uh, and we're going to be doing all that good stuff. And there's going to be joy unspeakable and full of glory. And there's going to be all of these great things. I'm going to enjoy that for a couple decades. And then I'm going to get a quiet place with God in heaven. I'm going to say, Lord, I still just don't understand exactly. Listen, that's okay because I'm not leaning to my own understanding. It's humanism. When you start thinking you know all of the answers, honey, nobody on the face of this planet knows all of the answers If they tell you they know everything, you can just turn your back and walk away laughing. Nobody's got it all figured out. But I want you to know, I want you to know, if you cry out to God, he'll meet you there. And sometimes people will say, listen, uh, don't don't tell people that, that, uh, don't make them feel like it's common to be discouraged. Listen, sometimes you're going to go through discouragement. And don't let the devil beat you up and tell you that you're a failure because you're fighting a little bit of discouragement. But let me tell you this too. Don't wallow in it either. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out to Jesus and let him bring you through. And he will do it. Number four, the enemy prevents commitment. Everyone said commitment. The church cannot function without commitment. The church cannot function without commitment. You can't function in your private life without commitment. You might think that you can, but healthy relationships of all kinds function off of commitment. Without commitment, the world would crumble. Without commitment, this church would crumble. Without commitment, every relationship in your life, and I mean every relationship in your life would crumble without the foundation of commitment. Everyone said commitment. And we're living in a world that doesn't want to commit to anything. We, we struggle with commitment. That's why divorce rates are well above 50% because our culture struggles with commitment. We're not a committed people. But the church is called to be a committed people. And the enemy knows that everything about the church hinges on a lifestyle of commitment. Commitment to God, commitment to the things of God, commitment to generosity, commitment to love, uh, commitment to the gospel. All of these things are built upon commitment. And so the enemy will encourage, and oftentimes he'll do it imperceptibly where you can hardly tell that he's doing it but he will infuse tiny doses of complacency into your life little by little by little until you until you wake up one day and you realize that you are full blown overcome by the spirit of complacency let me let me paraphrase Isaiah 32 this is uh, this was a horrible time in the nation of Israel, uh, they, they, had, they had become so complacent. The nation of Israel had become so complacent that they were 
they were listening to every false prophet that stepped into town with a new exciting message. They, they, were, uh, they were just eating up everything the false prophet said. It, when you read the book of Isaiah, verse chapter 31 and chapter 32, it's amazing the parallels to our modern society. People were being drawn to easy believism. People were being drawn to the prophets who told them what they wanted to hear. I don't want prophets in my life who just tell me what I want to hear. I want prophets in my life who tell me, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the word of God. And, uh, but the people were not listening to true prophets. In fact, the true prophets, uh, they didn't want anything to do with the true prophets. They wanted the false prophets. And because of that, there was all kinds of idolatry. There was all kinds of sin. There was all kinds of terrible things. The nation was in turmoil. And, uh, and so God was calling the people back to repentance through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah said something very interesting, starting in verse 9. I'm paraphrasing. He said, listen, you women. And, of course, he's talking uh, to all of Israel, but he's kind of zeroing in here. And he said, you women who lie around in ease, listen to me. You who are so smug, in a short time, just a little more than a year, you careless ones will suddenly begin to care. For your fruit crops will fail and the harvest will never take place. Tremble. Someone said tremble. This is how you fight back. This is If you wake up and you realize that you've got complacency in your heart, here's the first thing you need to do. You need to tremble. Tremble, you women of ease. Throw off. Someone said throw off. Cast off your complacency. Strip off your pretty clothes and put on burlap to show your grief. Beat your breasts in sorrow. Someone said repent. Repent. For your bountiful farms and your fruitful grapevines. For your land will be overgrown with thorns and briars. Your joyful homes and happy towns will be gone. The palace and the city will be deserted. And busy towns will be empty. Wild donkeys will frolic and flock. Will graze in the empty forts and watchtowers. Until at last. Someone said at last. At last the spirit is poured out on us from heaven. I'm going to tell you the remedy for complacency is for the Holy Spirit to fall like rain and wake us up for the Spirit of God to be poured out on dry, complacent ground. Then the wilderness will become a fertile field. How many want to have a fertile field of revival? We want the seed of God's Word to grow unhindered. The wilderness will become a fertile field. And the fertile field will yield bountiful crops. Someone said revival. Revival. Here's how you fight back. Before complacency takes root. Before it takes root. Matthew 22 and 37. Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first And great commandment. When you love God. When you love God more than just with your heart. Emotionally. See some people love God with their heart. They love God emotionally. And some people love God with their mind. They love God intellectually. But but it takes more than all of those things. You've got to love God with your heart. And with your soul. 
and with your mind. You have to love God completely. Someone said completely. You have to love God with every fiber of your being. And when you truly love God, it will combat complacency naturally. Because when you love God, he'll put his spirit inside of you. And you're going to love the lost. You're not going to be content to not have revival. Because God is not willing that any should perish. And when you love God and you begin to become like God, And when he puts his mind in you and when he puts his spirit inside of you, you can't walk around casually when the world is lost and on its way to hell. You can't come into a prayer room when you truly love God without falling on your face and crying out to God. When you truly love God, you can't come to a church service without worshiping God with all of your heart. You cannot... You cannot come into his presence without offering up thanksgiving when you truly love God. But when you lose your first love, complacency will step in. Combat complacency by falling in love with Jesus. Number five, and this is my last point. The enemy prevents peace. Someone said peace. And peace is what gives us closeness with God. By busyness. Everyone said busyness. Luke 10, 38. Now it came to pass as they went that Jesus entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving. Someone said very busy. And came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Stand with me as I close. Did you know you can be so busy that you miss the peace of God? Did you know that you can be so busy that you miss the will of God? You know, the number one reason I I hear people saying, well, we're having less church. I was talking to somebody the other day, and their church had gone down to one service a week. They don't have a midweek. They don't have a prayer meeting. They don't have any one service a week. And I asked them, I said, why? Why would you do that in the last days when, when the Bible says in the last days to forsake not the assembling together of yourselves and so much the more as the day of the Lord approaches. Why Why would you do that when you see the signs of the times all around you? Why, why in the world? And you know what he said? He said, because we're all just too busy. Too busy to make time for God. You'll lose your peace. You'll lose everything when you become so busy. You know... You can even become so busy like Martha did trying to do good things. You can even get so busy trying to do things that are admirable, things that might even your intentions might even be good. But sometimes you still have to stop and say, am I in the will of God right now? Because I know that busyness will rob me of my peace. How many want to have peace that passes understanding? Let's lift up our hands and pray that the Lord would arm us right now. Lord, in the name of Jesus, I pray that you would empower us to withstand every attack of the enemy, God. I pray that you would strengthen us, Lord, in Jesus' name.
जिल्हा